Jews need to be saved just as much as anybody else. That's essentially Paul's argument through all of chapter 9 of Romans and through chapter 10 to be elaborated more in chapter 11. And as we've been looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11 together as a unit, we find ourselves now in the next section of chapter 10 where he really begins to dive into the reality that if you are going to try to find a way to God simply by obeying the law, then you're going to be in for an impossible task. Because if you were to look at the children of Israel and evaluate them in terms of how successful they had been by looking at religion as a way to God, you would see that they had zeal, but it was zeal without knowledge. We looked at that last week. Oh, they were zealous. I mean, no one was more zealous than the Jews. They had zealous leaders, they had zealous followers, they had a zealous nation. They had a zealous religious party that was zealously persecuting those who were not as zealous as them and they would zealously bring their religion all around the world. And Jesus says, to the end that they make a proselyte twice, the son of hell is when they began. Because there was nothing in their religion that was actually going to save anybody. Because religion never saves. It was zeal without the knowledge, the knowledge of the truth of the gospel that would become the underpinnings for everything that Paul believed and taught. They also had works, but they had no righteousness. Works are fine. Works are to be expected. Works, according to James, are what validates your faith. But works are not the basis of your faith. Again, the Jews had good works. But none of it was going to do anything for them in the final judgment because you can't work your way to righteousness. There's no way for you to justify yourself. I was reminded of this yesterday when we were playing Ultimate Frisbee. Now, Saturday mornings, um, a small group of elite athletes gather together to play Ultimate Frisbee. And um, I represent the elderly. And... I have to tell you, um, with witnesses here, it was, it was pretty impressive, wasn't it, guys? I mean I, I mean, I just, I hate to say it, but yeah, I mean, I can still hang with the people 20 years younger than me. And at one particular time when we were playing Ultimate Frisbee, um, one of my team members, who will remain nameless here for the sake of anonymity, even though we did win the game in the end, he, he did drop a rather perfectly thrown Frisbee um, in the end zone. And, and upon gathering himself, he did utter these words, I need to redeem myself. And I thought to myself, yes, you do. And I thought, praise God, I don't have to redeem myself when it comes to my salvation. Praise God that my spiritual life is not like a game of ultimate frisbee. Praise God that I don't have to worry about having enough time left in the game to make up for a mistake that I made. Praise God that I don't look at redemption as something that I contribute to. You see, you can have great works and no righteousness. That was the nature of the Jewish condition. Zeal without knowledge, works without righteousness. Frankly, they had law without forgiveness. They had a series of laws that they would follow and they believed somehow that if they did that, that it would make them right with God and yet ironically, there was no ultimate forgiveness because God told them over and over again, it's not your bulls and goats, it's not the bloodbath of dead animals that will atone for sin. There is only the atonement through the Savior, through the Son, and through faith. He says, what I want is your heart. 
not the animals. So it's into a context where you had zeal without knowledge and works without righteousness and law without forgiveness that Paul writes a letter to a group of people who had religion without salvation. And he says, I want to clarify for you what it means to be saved, not what it means to be religious. And so he begins in the first four verses of chapter 10 by laying this out for them. And as I said, we covered that in detail last week. But this week, we turn our attention to the rest of it, which is verses 5 through 13. And in there, what I would like to show you this morning is faith explained and faith applied. Simple outline, faith explained and faith applied. Because if anybody knew about the law, it was Moses. And if anybody tried to earn salvation by the law, it was Paul. And both of them are going to team up together in this passage to take our eyes off of the law, the works, the religion, and on to faith in Christ and Christ alone. And the central theme of the section is the futile effort of self-salvation. And the central solution is faith. Faith explained and faith applied. Let's begin with faith explained. Look down at verse five where you see this. If you choose the path of religion, if you choose the path of works, then you better be perfect. I mean, these two roads diverge in the woods and if you choose the one that has the path laid out for you and a long list of rules and you believe that if you just follow the rules that you'll be right with God, then you better follow the rules perfectly. If you try to be somebody who lives based on the law and gets your justification that way and who does the commandments and gets your righteousness that way, then you have to be willing to live up to the expectation that they have and beloved, that is impossible. I don't care how good you are and you might be good. I know I'm speaking to people, some of whom are good. You are good rule followers. There is a rule, you will follow it. You prefer rules. Better to have rules and to know what to do than to have liberty and perhaps make a mistake. Better to have rules where everything is structured and you can check it off than have liberty and have to make decisions based on your conscience. There are rule followers and there are people who struggle with that. And here's the problem. With with those who are really good at rules, what can end up happening is you become self-righteous and proud. In fact, you begin to wonder why everyone else around you can't obey the rules as well as you can obey the rules. It's not hard for you. Why is it hard for them? I mean, these rules are great. If it weren't for rules, we'd have anarchy. I'd be out there making all these decisions by myself. I might make a mistake. And this way, I can stand before God one day and I can have a perfect score and I can get an A. Then there's the other group. They're the ones that don't do so well with the rules. And they're the ones, especially in a rule-oriented society, that end up being utterly despondent over the fact that they will never measure up to what the expectations are. They're the ones that say, I don't necessarily go out of my way to break the rules, but I just don't find that I can conform my life to this. I don't have that ability. It is not how I'm structured or wired. And you know what? Those are the very people that Jesus reaches out to with such care and sympathy in his ministry. They're the ones that he pursues. They're the ones that he offers grace to. They're the ones that he meets with. They're the women at the well that he sits and talks to. He drinks off their water jar. He commits these social acts of disgrace in front of other people in order to show that he is willing to bring grace and compassion to those people. And the other ones, 
the righteous ones, the rule followers, the self-righteous ones, if they thought that it was going to improve their standing before the Lord, they are the ones that he provides the most blistering, sarcastic attack toward. It's the religious leaders that he cuts down. So what does Paul do? How does Paul explain this to the people that he's writing this letter to? He's writing to the Roman believers. He's writing to people that are heavily influenced by the Jewish culture and tradition. How does he unpack it for them? Well, he begins by telling them that if you're going to try to earn your righteousness, you better be perfect because if you mess up even once, the whole thing is lost. There is no margin for error. But then he goes on to say what faith is. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith. Here's the alternative. He says, but, or however, the righteousness, and by the way, you could translate that with the word justification. It's based on faith and faith alone. It's not based on religion. It's not based on works. It's based on trust. Trust in the finished work of Christ. Did you know that trust is the opposite of works? If you had a religion of works and you had a religion of trust, you would have one going in one direction, one going in the other. In fact, one of them thinks you do enough works until you've compensated for your lack of faith. The other says, if you have faith, then God will empower you to do good works. So the idea of works and faith being together are not alien to this, but the order is different. For the legalist, he says, if I do enough good works, it'll prove my faith. And for the person who believes in faith, they say, if God gives me the faith to believe, then the fruit of that will be good works. So what do we do? We trust in the finished work of Christ. We do not have a religion that offers a way to God that doesn't require us to trust anyone but ourselves. That's what religion is. Religion is self-salvation. And it comes in many forms, and it has many different combinations of acts and beliefs, but at the root, that's what it is. It's self-salvation. It's self-redemption. It's redeeming myself. And Paul wants to essentially plant a bomb inside of that way of thinking and blow it up through the rest of Romans 10. So let's ask the question, what about good works? Before we go on too far from this, what about good works? Good works are, in fact, an aspect of you as a believer. This is something that should come to define you. In fact, in James chapter 2, I referenced it earlier, James gives a chapter or so to his epistle saying that if you are a genuine believer, you'll do these good works, but they are the result of what God's already done in your heart not the basis upon which he accepts you. So, this is amazing. What does righteousness really mean? It means justification. Righteousness means that you have been justified in the eyes of God. Holiness before God. What does faith really mean? Faith really means that you trust him to do the work and not yourself. What is real righteousness? It is justification in the eyes of God. What is real faith? It is trust in his work, not yours. So, we trust, believe that God will accept us based on the righteousness of Christ. We remember that, that he lived by the law as the perfect Adam, doing everything that Adam couldn't do, completing the course that was outlined earlier in chapter 10, right there in verse 5. He did that. He actually did go down that road, and he did walk it perfectly, and he did live out the law absolutely to the letter, fulfilling all righteousness, but he also died in the place of those who didn't. Do you see the miracle of this? 
He came as the, the second Adam. He, he came to fulfill everything that, that Adam failed to do. And he lived that law perfectly, but that wasn't the righteousness upon which your salvation is based. The righteousness on which your salvation is based is the fact that this holy, innocent, perfect Son of God allowed himself to be crucified for all of us who didn't live perfectly. His active and his passive righteousness. He completed both circuits. He ran both courses perfectly. He lived it out perfectly, accomplishing everything the law demanded, and he died the perfect substitutionary death for all of those who didn't. This is beyond comprehension. This is perfect submission to the law and perfect substitution for the lawbreaker. Christ is all in all. He is everything, and he is completely perfect, not only in his works, but also in his sacrifice. So his passive, we call this in theology, his passive righteousness, his natural righteousness is part of his character, and his active righteousness, his active obedience is part of his righteousness, and together they are granted to the one who puts their faith in him. And this is why he does not treat you as somebody who's never sinned. I know you might have heard that before. Allow me to make this correction. He does not treat you as somebody who's never sinned. He treats you as somebody who has sinned and deserves judgment, but has had the penalty for that judgment paid for by somebody else who was perfect. And so clothing you in that person's perfection, in Christ's perfection, he can look down on you as one who was at one time worthy of judgment but that that judgment has been fully paid, therefore satisfying his justice, satisfying his wrath, and at the same time, one who is covered in the righteousness of Christ, therefore satisfying his need for only holy perfection to be in his presence. Allow yourself to dwell on that for a moment. This is what upholds the justice and righteousness and grace and love of God in Christ and Christ alone. So, the law then is fulfilled and it's completed in him and therefore he is the end of the law. We saw that in chapter 9, verse 33. What does it mean for Christ to be the end of the law? It means for him to perfect it. Everything it was intended to do, it did in him. His obedience to the law was also perfect and complete so that his work on earth would be able to prove that there is no act of the will that would go unfulfilled, no act of the law that would go unfulfilled. And he could say that he had fulfilled all righteousness. So that's what righteousness based on faith looks like. Now Paul wants the, the readers to understand then how it's obtained. So we've talked about what it is, but, but how is it obtained? How do you get it? Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you know uh, for sure today, right now, at this moment, that you're justified in the eyes of a holy God? On, on what are you basing your confidence If this building were to blow up because of a gas leak, or to collapse because of an earthquake, or you were to have a heart attack at 11.48, what assurance do you have that you will enter into the presence of a holy God clothed in perfect righteousness? Because you will enter into the presence of a holy God one way or the other. It's not a matter of where you're going to go. It's a matter of how you're going to be clothed. 
You see, Hebrews says that it's appointed for everyone once to die and then the judgment. It doesn't say it's appointed for unbelievers once to die and then the judgment, and it's appointed for believers to die and get wings. There's a judgment. The judgment is coming. In fact, there is a fearful expectation of judgment, especially for those who are not sure upon what basis they will be judged. What I want to assure you of this morning is that if you stand before the Lord and you're judged on your own works, you have no hope. But when you stand before the Lord and you are judged based on the works and the righteousness of Christ, you are able to enter into his presence, as Jude says, boldly with great joy. So may it be our goal this morning to make sure everybody walks out of here knowing that if this is their last day on this earth, that they will be able to stand in the presence of God blameless with great joy. Amen? How do we do that? That's the question. Well, I can assure you, based on the testimony of Scripture, that if you're justified by Christ, you're going to enter into his presence in awe. But it's not going to be in awe, even the way that the prophet Isaiah entered into his presence, claiming to be a man of unclean lips, living in a people of unclean lips. As a matter of fact, you're going to be able to enter his presence the way that Christ himself does, a man of clean lips and of clean mind and of clean heart, being as clean as the Messiah himself who wraps you in his holiness and calls you forward to present yourself to God. It's almost beyond comprehension, isn't it? We almost don't want to believe that. It seems like it's too much. How is it possible that he could offer us such a gift? How is it right? How is it just? How is it fair? I mean, we know what we're like. We know what our own corruption is like. We know our sinfulness. We know our hopelessness. We know how often we fail and how much we stumble, even after coming to faith in Christ. How is it possible? Let me ask you this question as well. Can you say for sure that you're able to be presented as one who is blameless with great joy? If the questions that we're asking are are troubling our minds today, let's go back to the text and make sure we find the answer there, and I believe you'll see it. Because Paul gives the answer, and he tells us that true grace and faith alone, the true gospel conversion, is actually interpreted here through the eyes of the laws of Moses. Look at what he says. This is amazing. He picks up the account here in verse 6. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's an incredible portion of the book of Romans, and understanding it is going to unlock so many amazing realities for you. Please carefully consider this. I mean, what a strange way to say what Paul wants to say. I mean, who is really contemplating how might I reach up to heaven to call Christ down and how might I enter the abyss to drag him up? I don't hear those questions. Like, those are not what people are asking when they call the church. People call the church and they ask interesting questions. On Monday, a guy called the church and I happened to be in the office and the phone was handed to me and he said, do you preach the Bible at your church? And I said, amen, brother, yes, we do. He said, so then you preach the true word of God and all truth. I said, yes, we do. At least I hope to, I intend to, I aspire to. He said, so you don't preach this idea that the world is round. Conversation didn't go on much longer after that. 
That is true. I get calls from flat earthers who would like to make sure that I haven't fallen for this whole scam of the world being round. You wonder what I do all week. But what are these questions? I mean, who's really looking to call Christ down or bring Christ up? What is he talking about? Well, notice what he's doing here. He's reaching back into Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. You can jot that down if you want for future reference. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14, where Moses says this. I'm going to read the text to you. Listen carefully. He says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, notice, when Paul quotes that, I want you to notice two things. What is taken away and what is added? What is not in the quotation and what is added to the quotation? You see, when you're an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit and you're writing the book of Romans, you can quote the Old Testament and you can leave certain things out and you can put certain things in. You and I can't do that. We're not allowed. But when you're the apostle Paul, you can. And he did to make a point. Notice what he pulled out. He pulled out over and over again the parts that said that we may hear and do it. He takes away the notion that, that in the law is this expectation that you're going to do something. He says it's not about you doing anything and instead replaces it with everything that this was pointing to, namely Christ. It was Christ that was in view and it is Christ who is doing it. It's his work, ultimately that's in view. We don't have to ascend to Christ because he was sent to us. We don't have to descend to Christ as in to raise him from the dead because he was raised for us. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to do anything. It is all done by him. That's the point that Paul is trying to make to these believers and to these Jews that are listening in. We simply need to believe in the finished work of Christ, confess our faith that his righteousness has been given to us, we just have to express what we know in our hearts to be true and receive it from him. But what does it say, verse 8? Here's the answer. The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Could there be a sweeter or simpler truth than this? This is not saying that the answer is inside you, just reflect. It's not saying that you are the answer. It's saying that the answer is already known to you. It is known to you. The Lordship and the resurrection of Christ are the foundational confessions of the faith. And this is something that's already been explained. Without knowing, believing, and confessing this, you can't be saved. And there is an objective element to the doctrine of salvation. You have to know certain things and believe certain things. You can't have zeal without knowledge. But they are a confession that you make of your faith. And notice what he says. Your mouth and your heart are featured. Your mouth and your heart. What does that mean? Well, with your mouth, you offer a confession, and with your heart, you prove you believe it. 
Let me remind you that in those days, the, the heart was the place that was the seat of your intelligence and your intellect and your thinking, your reasoning. You reasoned in your heart. Your emotions were actually your bowels. That's how they would describe it in Greek literature. So it's not like in our culture where your emotions are in your heart and your thinking is in your brain. In the Greek culture, your emotions are in your bowels, your thinking is in your heart, and your volition is in your brain. And so when Paul here says that you know it in your heart, it means that you've thought this through, you've reasoned it through. It's, it's logic, it's, it's objective. You have heard and you believe. So that's faith explained. What about faith applied, verses 10 to 13? Faith applied. There are four points, and they all start with four. Four, four. Four by four. Four, verse 10, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He explains it in more detail here. He's basically saying the same thing he said up in verse 9, just with a little bit more detail, unpacking it. Believing then is confessing. It's logic and then experience. It's justification and then salvation. You hear and you believe. You are made righteous, and being made righteous, you are saved. Remember, salvation is an act that is said to have happened in the past, is presently happening, and will happen in the future. Salvation is a very elastic term. Justification is one time. You are declared righteous. We, we, we use the term forensic. Uh, it's a legal justification, a legal declaration. But the salvation part means I've been saved from everything in the past that would have condemned me. I am being saved at this present moment because the Lord is interceding for me and advocating for me constantly. And I will be saved one day in the end when none of my present habitual sins are held against me and I am only judged on the righteousness of Christ. What a wonderful truth, isn't it? I mean, let's just be reminded of that every week. I mean, that is the essence of the gospel. That's why we come back to it every single time, no matter what book we're in, no matter what study we're teaching, we come back to that central reality. That's what we're going to celebrate here in a few moments in the Lord's Supper. And so, when we celebrate this and we confess this, we are showing that it is faith applied. Verse 11, another four, the second of the four, Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, this is really an interesting quotation, again, from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16, quoted also back up in chapter 9, verse 33 of Romans. It means that we're never going to be let down. Put to shame there um, means that we're not going to be disappointed in, in whom we've put our trust. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you today. I don't follow any particular sport or sport team very closely. I have no particular team that I'm fond of. I have no particular sport that I watch religiously. Maybe it's because I didn't think sports were that important unless I was actually playing them. Like I'm an avid follower of amateur ultimate frisbee on Saturday mornings. But were I to be the kind of person who, who followed a team, I think my nature would probably be to choose a team that I was quite confident would win because I don't particularly enjoy being disappointed by teams that would let me down. For example, if I were a season ticket holder of, of a team, and some of you who know sports and watch sports and are very into sports, right now you're thinking about one of these teams, a team that just consistently loses. They're always at the bottom. 
of the ranking, no matter what it is, every season, over and over again, they're always in the bottom. I believe that there are probably still fans of those teams. They, they, they get together every time the team plays, they buy season tickets, they go and they watch them and they root for them knowing they're going to lose. And, and, and they take solace with each other. It's like a support group. They get together, they think they're more righteous than everybody else because they're faithful. They have been faithfully cheering for this team for decades even though they have lost every time. Beloved, that imagery is what the Apostle Paul and Isaiah want to rob from your mind were you ever to apply it to Christ. He will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. He will never fail. He will never in the end prove to be insufficient. He will never in any aspect of anything that he has committed to you fail to achieve it, fail to accomplish it, fail to realize it, fail to give it, fail to follow through. In the sort of typological example of Boaz in the book of Ruth, there is this beautiful scene where Ruth comes back to Naomi to tell her of the kindness that Boaz has shown to her and his promise to redeem her. And Naomi says to Ruth that he is a man of honor and today he will settle it. It's like that with the risen Christ, ascended back to seat at the right hand of the Father in his glory on high, looking to him, the ultimate finisher of our faith, saying that he will do it. Whatever he has said, it is secure. He will follow through. You will not be put to shame. It's never going to be proved to be misplaced if you put your confidence in him. People are going to let you down. Christ will never let you down. People are going to make you feel foolish for being loyal to them. He will never do that to you. The third application is this in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It is that righteousness of Christ that is imputed. It is given. There's no consideration of gender or ethnicity or station in life. There is no favoritism or discrimination. All who call on him in faith receive the riches of his glory. And if you're under the impression today that because of something that you have done or because of something you are presently doing, that you are somehow not acceptable to God, that he could not rescue and redeem you, that he could not forgive you and restore you, then let me relieve you of those concerns. Because he is telling you right now to confess your faith in him and to take that step of belief and then to watch what he does to transform you from poverty to riches, from blindness to sight, from death to life. Friend, listen to me. By exercising that faith and trust, it unleashes the transforming power of the gospel in your life to make you that new creature. You don't clean yourself up in order to make yourself worthy. You come as the unworthy person that you are claiming nothing but his promise to receive all who come to him and name his name. 
One of my favorite hymns goes like this, so perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. There's one more for, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Once again, Paul reaching back into the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, in this case, the prophet Joel, he is quoting Joel 2.32. And it's used here to say that God is a saving God. The, the context of Joel 2 is, is pretty, pretty dark. It's, it's the judgment of God coming upon the people. But he says that even in his judgment and even in his wrath and even in the impending doom that awaits those who remain, there will be some who call on his name in genuine saving faith. And if it saved them, it'll save us. Maybe not in a physical sense, the way it would have to the original hearers, but in a spiritual sense, which is even more important. Nothing is earned. All that is required is the call for salvation, the calling out for help, acknowledging your weakness, acknowledging that no one can save you but him. Another song goes like this, and I think it captures the heart of the apostle well. Come ye sinner, poor and needy, weak and weary, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. May there be none that tarry today thinking that they have to be better to be accepted, but rather to come as you are, receiving that free gift of salvation to all who call in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed yet again at the magnitude of your grace. As we see your promise laid out for us here in these scriptures, the promise that those who put their trust in you will be saved. The promise that faith that is exercised, faith that is given by you and then turned toward your Son is the very faith that redeems and saves, justifies. It's the faith that makes possible the acceptance of us before you, the holy and just God. Thank you, Lord, that we have no works that we have to perform in order to earn our salvation, and that as a consequence of our salvation, you empower us by your Spirit to do good works. As we prepare in a moment to hear about an opportunity that is presented to us to do some of those very good works, feeding, sheltering, rescuing, ministering to those who are in need. I pray that you would move in our hearts in a very special and meaningful and generous way, even today. And may it bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.